You could tell this story from a variety of different ways. So it's easy to fall in love with an idea. It's easy for the imagination of, oh, let's go build something new and all that starting from scratch and your eyes are big. But because I have done this so many times, there was very little delusion in my head of what it was actually gonna take. And I wasn't sure I had that in me one more time. I went to my wife and I'm like, I'm not sure if I wanna keep doing the financial service company, I think I wanna sell it. She's like, what are you gonna do? And I'm like, I think this training layers thing is something. I need to spend the next 90 days figuring out is it a product or a feature or a company? Where do you think your entrepreneurial journey started? I've never been the fastest. I've never been the smartest. I've never been the tallest. I've never surely been the prettiest, you know, but you can show up early and you can go home late. And so, you know, people have asked me a, long, a lot of times, what's my superpower? And this sort of goes into that is it's the ability to absorb pain. Um, and so if you never come off the field, it's amazing the opportunities that are presented to you. I always laugh going, a little kid from Iowa, there's always an opportunity to say, you know, what can I do in my free time to make sure that, you know, really I have some money, you know, you know, we didn't have a lot, right? It was one of those things, but it was nice to be able to buy the candy that I wanted, to be able to go to the movies, to be able to do the things that other kids could do that we couldn't. And so it was complain or go figure it out. And so I was always sort of a, let's go figure it out person. Welcome to Funds and Founders. This weekly show is tailored for Austin founders navigating the early stages of their entrepreneurial journey. I'm your host and fellow Austinite, Abhinav Sinha. If you're looking for the motivation and the insight needed to build a successful company, you're in the right place. Today we have on Brett Sears, who's a local Austin founder. He went to UCLA, did a stint at Stanford, ran a financial services company for a while, did a leadership and coaching company with your wife, if I'm correct. Mm -hmm. Has a family of two kids. Four. Four kids and currently is the CEO of Training Layers, the tagline being the GPS of software. Why don't you give yourself a quick introduction, Brett? Well, thank you for having us. This is, this is fun, or having me, I guess I should say. My name is Brett Sears. I'm, as you said, the founder and CEO of Training Layers. You could tell this story from a variety of different ways. So earlier this year, 2023, I sold my financial services company. That had run its course, been 25 years. and was at a place where it was about to really, really grow. But for that to happen, it was going to take three to five years of next level in it, right? We sort of built a foundation for it to grow a national scale company, but it was gonna take me diving in and really going back to where it was to build anything. And I wasn't sure I had that in me one more time. And at the same time, the idea of training layers had sort of come together and had proven itself as a viable thing. I started actually, it's funny, a year ago this week okay. after Christmas, I went to my wife and I'm like, I'm not sure if I want to keep doing the financial service company, I think I want to sell it. She's like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I think this training layers thing is something. She's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, I need to spend the next 90 days figuring out, is it a product or a feature, a product or a company? You and I talked about this sort of, this was one of the first conversations was because I think it's easy to fall in love with an idea. It's easy for the imagination of, oh, let's go build something new and all that beauty of starting from scratch and your eyes are big. But because I have done this so many times, there was very little delusion in my head of what it was actually going to take. And to spend five to 10 years on building a feature just isn't a good use of time, money, and energy. A product is something that, okay, maybe it works if it's the perfect thing, but if there's a foundation for a company, then it can scale and it can be something pretty significant. And so that's sort of how we made that decision here. And so the last 12 months has been building and running and growing. We're getting ready for the launch and uh, it's been a crazy year. Sweet. Let's take a step back. Where do you think your entrepreneurial journey started? I always laugh going, a little kid from Iowa and, you know, as a kid, whether it was paper routes or picking up bottles around the neighborhood or whatever, is always an opportunity to say, what can I do in my free time to make sure that I have some money? We didn't have a lot, right? It was one of those things, but it was nice to be able to buy the candy that I wanted, to be able to go to the movies, to be able to do the things that other kids could do that we couldn't. It was complain or go figure it out. And so I was always sort of a, let's go figure it out person. So that you would say that pushed you to 
find opportunities or look for opportunities to give yourself an edge, so to say. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's one of those things, whether it's sports, I've never been, <laughs> I laugh, I tell my kids this, I've never been the fastest, I've never been the smartest, I've never been the tallest, I've never surely been the prettiest, you know, but you can show up early and you can go home late. And so people have asked me along a lot of times, what's my superpower? And this sort of goes into that is it's the ability to absorb pain. And so if you never come off the field, it's amazing the opportunities that are presented to you. And so that being at the right place at the right time, because no one else is there, showed me a long, long time ago that opportunities will show up. And so that's where that entrepreneurial belief sort of comes in. Where do you think is the first time you saw that? Or the first time that that really sunk in? That's a hard, that's a really hard question to sort of figure out. You know, you get stopped at a stoplight and you're bummed because you're in a hurry. And then 40 seconds later, you get going and there's a policeman on the side of the road. And you know, you were, you were speeding, which means you might've gotten that ticket. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? You just sort of look for grateful and appreciative moments Makes sense. Makes sense. and opportunities are there. So there's joys in just finding those small wins yeah. in everyday life, right? Every, yeah. After college, after doing your stint at Stanford, how did you get into doing financial services? I graduated from UCLA. I was at, in a grant, in a grant at Stanford and was supposed to go get my doctorate there. But I was, both my parents were teachers. School was one of those things that I was relatively good at, but didn't really enjoy. I, it felt like there were two types of teachers in the world. I knew I want, I thought I wanted to be a teacher, but there were two types of teachers. One teaches for people to learn. And that never really drove me. I remember going to school and being like, okay, look at the syllabus. What do I need to do to get the grade that I want? Put in that time and effort, take the test at the end, and then be like, what was that class about? Oh, who knows? On to the next. The other type of teacher teaches for people to accomplish, be able to say, because at this point in time, my life is different. And that always drove me. And so literally I was waiting tables and on a Thursday night, you know, getting ready to, to move back up to Stanford to finish the, you know, go get my degree. And I met somebody in the financial service space and says, look, we're growing and training and teaching people how to do this. And it just sparked. They said, we're, we've got a training program, we'll grow. And something just clicked. And I'm like, I could teach people things about money that I never knew. I could own my life. And I was done with school. So I was like, all right, let's just turn on a dime and let's go. It really was a 180 degree decision in like 12 seconds. Was there ever a scare, a worry, or did it just make sense at the time? There were times, like calling my mom, calling now my wife and being like, hey, that whole continuing my education at Stanford and get my doctorate, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go in financial services. Those were probably the two scariest calls. After that, it was a shit show. Like, things are hard. There were lots of times where you're like, was this the right decision? Why did I do this? But you did it. You have two choices, like give up and go back or put your head down and continue to be successful. And so if you won't come off the field, amazing things happen. In the 25, 27 years of building the financial services company, what was the first win or victory that you sort of remember or sticks? So our previous guest, Lakan, he mentioned when he hit the million user mark is like a key defining moment for a SaaS company. It's like bare bones. He remembers it very distinctively. Are there some key moments in that journey where milestones that you remember very distinctively? Yeah, I mean, I think that whether it was landing some accounts that we probably didn't feel like we had any business landing or hitting revenue and income goals where you're like, wow, I never knew that this was possible. Those goals were... They were important for me to be able to realize that, okay, what's the next one? They became less and less important. And so then it was, I'll tell some weird stories, but I operated angry for a significant amount of my life. A lot of my energy came from that. And so telling me I can't do something was significantly more powerful than telling me that I could. Losing something was significantly more impactful than gaining something you always sort of reinvent yourself. And I remember, you know, about 15 years into the business going, I don't like who I am. I don't like being mad all the time. I don't like making other people mad because I think that's where that motivation comes from. And so it was right around that time, I've got older kids that Monsters Inc. came out. 
And the premise of this, right, is, is that laughter is more powerful than screams. And that movie, in a weird way, had a really fundamental shift in my motivational structure. It took me probably three years to figure out how do you ignite light from joy? How do you get the same strength from opportunity and light than you do from frustration and anger? Um, and so building this new company and really working to operate from light is a really strange thing because it's a different focus. Uh, and so when you think about sort of those moments, the most impactful one was when I realized that I could be happy and aggressive. Why do you think you were operating under anger the first half or the first stint in your parenting issues and all this stuff. Like when you're told your whole life, you're not good enough, you're not fast enough, you're not strong yeah. enough, right? My dad was born and raised on the reservation. You know, I'm a little Indian kid from Iowa and we were accepted, but there was always something. And it always felt like I didn't belong in different groups, right? My skin's very white. So I would go hang out with my dad's family and well, are you sure you fit here? Makes and sense. then, but I always identify it's both emotionally and spiritually with that. And so there's, there's a lot of time of trying to figure out where you fit and do you fit. Do you think that aided to part of the reason you were able to build a successful financial services company? Like those traits of, I can't fail, I'm going to go get it, I'm going to be the last on the field. Do you think those are important in the journey of being able to succeed or are there other paths to get there? I don't know. So Adam Grant wrote about the mat, you know, the 10,000 hours, right? And the premise of it is, I don't know anyone who put in 10,000 hours of focus towards mastery that didn't create success. And I don't know anyone who didn't put in that time that did, right? So I always laugh going, LeBron James, most gifted basketball player, like all this stuff, but he's also grinded. Right. I don't believe that if LeBron James never picked up a basketball until he was 25, that he would have been the player that he is. Makes sense. And so we take advantage of the opportunities, you put in the work, and then you separate yourself. You leverage every competitive advantage you have. If you're good at X, take advantage of it. If you're good at Y, take advantage of it. Right. I am incredibly competitive and I know that I have unique gifts that my job is to put myself in a position to take advantage of. What's been one or two key learnings in this journey? So you mentioned seeing the light instead of using anger. What are one or two other learnings in building your financial services company that you think you've come out of? I think communication is everything. I am an introvert by nature, right? I don't enjoy being the center of attention. I'm not really a gregarious person. Now, people who know me and see me on topics get confused because I can get excited and I'm an excitable person if there's something that I believe in or something I want to communicate about. But one of the things that I had to learn was, and I call it, you know, freeways and on-ramps, right? So what I studied was that there are people who are really good communicators. They're really good networkers. They're good talking with folks. Well, most of them have had the same conversation a thousand times. They're actually really good at that conversation. And what they get then equally good at is on-ramps oh, how can I create this conversation I'm having this person that gets it directed to a conversation that I'm an expert at? And then I can have an incredibly effective conversation because I've had it multiple times. And so the better you get at on-ramps and your highway conversations, the more of a connected communicator you can be. When I understood that, I was like, oh, okay, I can practice these conversations and I can go out and get myself incredibly uncomfortable because I'm gonna get better at my high, my freeways and I'm gonna get better at my on-ramps, which expands my comfort, which then allows me to do more and I can reach and connect with people and get past that uncomfortable area and actually find some genuine people where real relationships can go. And that's where greatness happens, is you Makes meet sense. great people and collaborative ideas. Makes sense. You mentioned goal setting. You mentioned reaching one goal, setting the next goal in this journey. How do you go about goal setting when building a company, when building a startup? What are some things you look at, some frameworks you use? So this is where 15 years of teaching and coaching sort of helped is I built a bunch of frameworks that are really interesting to teach somebody else and then to have to apply them to yourself because you're like, oh, this is harder to apply. I'm a really big believer in figuring out where people get stuck. And this has really come up because as we're starting to hire 
new people and I'm starting to get them involved with the business, everyone wants to go do something. So you tell them, hey, here's what we're going to go accomplish. And they're like, okay, I got it. And I'm going to go do. Everyone wants to go act. And I think it's one of the biggest mistakes that most people make is they think that the end goal can actually be accomplished by a particular action. And it can't. We think about it as this directional, the strategic, and the tactical. Yes, ultimately, you have to do a whole bunch of stuff. But all the doing has to be to accomplish whatever the strategic objective is. And then you string together three or four strategic objectives to get the main goal. And so one of the things that I think that has allowed us to create the progress this year that I'm proud of is we've been very, very clear at what the directional goals are. And we've spent a decent to a fair amount of time identifying the strategic goals that need to happen. And then what are the tangible goals that have to get there? And so we can be really, really focused on and deliberate about particular actions and what those outcomes are going to be. You know, we thought that we built our MVP. We had a first sort of release. We thought it was, we were good to go. And I had it built in the wrong language. And so, you know, in June, we ended up basically tearing down the system and rebuilding it from scratch. I didn't fully appreciate and understand what that was going to mean. And that was less than ideal for our roadmap and our timeline and all of that. So I had two choices at that moment. I could basically sit and stay who I was because there wasn't a lot for me to quote unquote do for the next three or four months until we rebuilt this entire system. And so we went, okay, well, what would I be doing if we were live? What would I be doing? Where are the things? And we just actively did it six months in advance without the stress of onboarding new customers and without having to go sell and without having to go do that. I genuinely believe we're six months to a year ahead of where we would have been because we could organize and plan in a time where it was inconvenient and not easy to do because there was nothing banging on the door saying, you have to do this. It was pretty quiet. And so we got to choose to stay focused and be deliberate because of how we structured and planned. Makes sense. Uh, do you do goal setting with a team, with a leadership team? Is it just you or how do you best like to do goal setting? In reality is I get myself as clear as I can. I've got a co-founder and a really good friend and a partner that we do a lot of brainstorming on and he's our CTO and he sort of runs that. So I'm, I come to a, here's where I'd like to be. Here's where the business needs this. And then he'll bring, here's the timing, here's the planning. We push each other on that. I really work to get a clear organizational structure and then go to each of the departments and be able to do, here's where we need to be, here's the roadmap, here's the deliverables. And then really focused on dashboards and accountabilities so that we can empower the leaders at each of the departments to say, your job's to bring me your dashboard. Your job's to bring me what you think you're supposed to be measuring and how it is. Because I've found that if I tell people here's what you should care about, they haven't discovered it. And Makes so sense. it's my goals they're trying to satisfy. But when it's their dashboard, when they chose the metrics, then I get to go, well, where are we? And, and they can't discount them because they created them. Right. Isn't it funny when early on as a founder, you're all of your departments and you're all of your dashboards and you're like, everything's supposed to just move and happen. And I find it funny because sometimes I talk to founders and they... They use the same analogy, but it's them on every side of the board. And I'm like, I like that you're still thinking about this as business units, even though it's a two-person team. That means there is some structure. You're thinking about structure and scale and future, and there's some maturity there. But I like that train of thought. What was the change and pivot like from going from financial services company to tech product? And how long was that in-between change pivot? Oh, it was a day. And it's been crazy. The goal was I'm going to take Q1 of 2023 and I'm going to go, I'm going to immerse myself in the Austin startup space. And I'm going to figure out, is this a feature? Is this a product or is this a company? And I got some early traction and had some good conversations and then ended up at a dinner with some interesting folks and my wife and I were drinking and we were having dinner and she looks at me and she's like, Hey, you should tell them what you're working on. And I pitched the basics of training layers and they were, both of them are in the tech space and, and both of them are like, 
if you have it, I'll buy it. And it was one of those sort of like, we all maybe had an extra glass of wine and we were talking and I, and I was like, are you serious? And we ended up in like a 10 minute, this is a serious conversation and then disengage. And my wife and I are driving or going home, we're in the Uber home and we're like, so that was an interesting conversation. And literally woke up the next day and modeled out, okay, what would it take? What's the funding? What's like, if this is more than, a, this is obviously more than a feature, is it a product or a company? We realized that I'm 50. We've had some success and we've created some, you know, some opportunities. But if we're going to go do this, there's an opportunity to fundamentally change the way users learn how to use software at scale. There's a potential opportunity to, ch to change the game. And so VC funding became something that was on the table for us to pursue, right? I don't think that everyone should try to be venture backed. I don't think that it's right for everybody. I think you have to know what you're getting into and be eyes wide open of what that is. Um, and sometimes that's easier said than done. But because of my investment licenses, if I was going to walk into a venture and I was going to pitch, like I didn't need them to sign the NDA, but I needed them to sign a selling away agreement that I was not actively like, and that just wasn't going to happen. And so the moment we realized that this is something we were going to do and it was going to be VC path, VC path, um, I had to sell. And so literally I called a buddy of mine that we had talked about a long time ago going, if I ever sold, he'd buy it. And I called him on a Sunday and said, you want it? Like, this is bad. And he's like, really? Call me, tell me about tomorrow. And so by Monday, so that was Sunday. By Monday, we were in agreement. Tuesday, we filed to open up the company. So literally on a Monday, I sold the company. And on Tuesday, I formed the new one. Nice. So not what everyone says you should do, but it was sort of one of those, here, let's go. I mean, it took another month for the company, like for all yeah, the things, yeah, but yeah. essentially it was. So uh, that dinner and those two conversations, was that conviction enough for you to make the move or were there, was there other so we'd validation had, that had We'd happened? had a lot of validation. This was sort of the- Icing on top. And it was a particular group of people that had no vested interest in being supportive. In fact- they're normally not Makes by disposition, Makes not sense. the people, but the position. And it was like, oh, our job is to reject ideas like this. And they were both, oh, okay. So then that sort of sparked this, okay, let's go. Yeah, it wasn't this one, but it was the, we're sort of getting there, sort of getting there. And then it sort of lit the fuse on, okay, this is it. So I'm guessing sold a company, started a tech company, it's going to be all easy from here, right? Because, you know, done of it course, once, can do it again, course. right? Yeah. That, well, that was the strangest part was being in professional services. I tell people, being in professional services, I've licensed and trained over 3,000 people. The number of people that would pass a test and then go make some transaction on the same week was like in the hundreds because the product's baked. You can be sort of cool, clueless, right? But you're like, hey, this is a good product. You should save, you should invest this. But in B2B SaaS, the product's never done, but you have to be. You get into conversations with people who know the words and the language. The expectation is you can play at this level from the word go. And so this year has been, I felt like a substitute teacher of eighth graders, right? I'm like, I'm reading the book the night before trying to understand what, what does LTV mean? Like, I just don't have a clue, right, in terms of this, but you have to. And that created an incredible urgency that I'm so grateful for because it might have been easy to be like, oh, I've done this before. And it could have been three or four months where I sort of take the old school sort of energy into this new world and have nothing done. But because the expectation was you have to be on point from the word go, I've been on fire all year and I have no problem embarrassing myself. I'm just one of those folks like, I'll just say stupid stuff yeah. and then they'll go, oh, I guess I won't say that again and learn. I really try not to say the same dumb thing over and over again. The new dumb thing. I <laughs> <laughs> and you just sort of systematically eliminate, oh, that didn't go over well. Okay, what's next? So yeah, this has been a year of craziness. Well, what does that look like? When you start building a tech company, what's the first thing you do? And what's that learning cur curve have looked like for you? Ours was a bit different. So in my old company, I had built a bunch of proprietary software. So the, the way Training Layers came was we had built software for our company. 
And it was FUBU, right? It was for us, by us, right? So I knew it worked. It was literally everything that I did, everything that allowed us to scale. Um, but as the as the features increase and it got more and more robust, our usability and usage decreased, which if you're not in software, that makes no sense. Yeah. And, it, and it'd be whittled. I'm like, what's going on? So I jump on these Zoom calls with my team and I'd be like, what's going on? And I'm frustrated and I'm mad. I'm not curious, right? I'm in full candor. I am not empathetic during these calls. I'm frustrated. This is my leadership team. I'm like, you just do these three things. And I'm starting to watch these light bulbs go off. I'm like, how did you not know that? How would we know? I'm like, I don't know. So I started, and by the time it was done, I was probably doing three to four hours a day in 20 minute Zoom calls just to run our systems to be able to teach how it does. But it finally got me so frustrated. I'm like, I can't do these calls anymore. So I just started recording them and putting them in the software. So I could just like click a little button and there I am in my 11 seconds or my two minutes and sort of explaining it the same. I wasn't cussing them at that point, right? I was at, and in 90 days, our usage doubled and our productivity tripled. Nice. And I started talking to folks, what's going on? Like, well, we finally know what to do. That's where this sort of clicked. I Makes started sense. calling other buddies at, at other, other companies. I'm like, how do you do this? Like, none of us knew. There was no good mechanism for us to talk to our people and teach them how to use our systems the way they were designed, whether we built them or someone else did. And so training layers came out of solving a problem for us that had already worked. And so the reason that it was built in the wrong language was I was building it for us. And so it wasn't built for commercial, wasn't built to scale at enterprise. When we decided to do this, I sort of thought I could just keep doing what I was doing. I didn't have a CTO at the moment. I'm like, oh, I can figure this out. And we just kept banging our head against the wall. Then John and I started talking and he's like, well, let me do a code review. Let me look at this. Let me really figure out, like, do I want, I love the idea. I love what this is. And he comes back and he's like, yeah, okay, but if we're actually going to go do this and my name's going to go on it, this isn't going to scale. Yeah, I know Facebook's and PHP, but like we're not Facebook, right? In terms of this, like, let's go, let's put ourselves in the best position too. And so we had to sort of make that adjustment. So we kept running, like whatever was in front of us, whatever the next box was, we were just going to go attack it and paint the picture of here's where we're going. Makes sense. So you start the tech company, you have a rough idea of the problem statement, the solution, you have a MVP of sorts. How do you go about just tackling this space? Because entering the software space, there's so much information. It's sometimes too much, right? B2B, B2C, B2B to C, enterprise. Um, there's all this stuff thrown at you. How do you know who to build for? How do you know what you're building? How did you start narrowing down and honing down that vision? Like, how did you start figuring these things out? So old school, right? Basic research. From January 1st to July 1st, uh, I talked to 150 CEOs, CTOs, product managers, and customer success. I'd go to Austin, I'd go to LA, like whoever I could talk to that was in the software space, whether I hit them up on LinkedIn or I walked into a meetup or whatever it was, and I'd ask them and I'd interview, like, where is this? How does this particular problem get us solved? And I walked in with biases that I were convinced were right. 40% of them were, 60% of them weren't, but they led me to stronger convictions and stronger understanding. So why we were building off of a hypothesis and idea, it was, okay, let's test it and let's ask. So your basic list of assumptions that yeah. you're crossing yeah. off, right? Yeah, you know, and you ask, and I went to an event, and one of the things the speaker had said was, figure out what assumptions you have that are true. Capital factory, right? Capital factory, yeah, right? Yeah. And then what are the assumptions that have to be true? Not just the assumptions you have, but what are the ones that have to be true for your system to actually make the impact? And that exercise was really, really uncomfortable because there are certain things that you're like, oh yeah, that's true. I hope, oh shit, is that a critical one? Okay, then we better really test this. We better really ask, you know, and then where does this go? And in our space, there's a lot of people focus on onboarding, right? And so there's these digital adoption platforms that are about these tours and these hints. And we walked away with a phrase that's beyond onboarding. 
right? If we were going to go build this, the system didn't need another onboarding company. We needed the entire user journey. We needed to move from onboarding to engagement, feature adoption, continuous learning. There needed to be a way to take a user through their entire journey because they aren't interested in the software. They're interested in the outcomes that they have for their job. They're interested in their promotion. They're interested in getting home to be with their kids. They're interested in not being yelled at by their boss. And this software that they have is simply a tool to execute that. And so take it beyond making the software company's goals a reality to actually helping the user learn how to use this stuff because their life's better. That was the outcome from all of those interviews. And so for us, we really think about this beyond, it's onboarding and beyond onboarding as a premise. What's been some of the best parts about starting Training Layers? Meeting really, really interesting people. Bill, I moved to Austin. I was, in, I, was, I was in Austin for a year before we did this. And I sort of lived within our little space and I knew how to operate. Building a new world was, okay, I'm going to go run into an entire ecosystem. Now, it happened to be Austin, which was great, right? I was in LA before, which would have been great. You know, you sort of surround yourself with an environment. I don't know if you're in an area that doesn't have that. It is what it is. You figure it out, right? There's a bunch of places on LinkedIn, right? There's a bunch of different meetups. There's things that you can do to solve your problems. But meeting amazing people and then figuring out... I have an idea. Can it work? Will somebody buy it? Like that's such a weird thing to be like, I'm going to go create this thing that doesn't exist. And can I tell the story? And then can I get somebody else to pay me for it? Because their system's going to be better because of it. Like that whole dynamic has been surreal and a whole lot of fun. Do you think you figured it all out in terms of building a SaaS product? There's a ton. There's never going to be an end to it. What's fascinating is, and you sort of intimated it earlier, I think in departments. And so right now we're starting in the sales department. So I'm now looking at a bunch of sales tools and a bunch of sales metrics and things that I didn't need to worry about. I, I've spent 25 years in sales, so I have no problem with that concept, but B2B SaaS and what are the timelines and the stakeholders and the buyer's journey and all of that is just new. And then I'm gonna figure it out. And then I'm gonna have to teach how to teach other people how to do it and what are the metrics and scales. And so I could spend the next six to 12 months simply studying the sales process on this and be back here a year from now. And then it's like, okay, now what about the marketing side? And what about the customer Makes success sense. side? Cause there's just so many 100%. departments that are What's been some of the hardest parts about building a tech SaaS product? Because personally, I feel like sometimes when I'm doing something in a space I don't understand, there's like, I understand product, I understand tech, but like sales is not a strong suit or enterprise is a sector I don't understand. Like there's these things or facets. I'm like, I get the smaller, I get the SMB side, enterprise is something I is there something or some, some things that stood out in your journey so far from starting Training Layers, which has been a hurdle you went over, like, I had to tackle this, I went and figured it out? It's every one of them. But I will say that, and, and, I, and I'll talk to folks a lot, tell me what your LinkedIn wall looks like, and I'll tell you sort of where your challenges are and where your focuses are, right? And so right now, marketing has never been an area, like being able to be a concise storyteller wasn't my strength. Makes sense. Uh, and so I have studied and practiced and reached out and befriended a whole bunch of people that are really, really good in this space. And then it becomes hard because everyone's got an opinion and everyone's got, and you're like, oh, well, which, and you sort of have to choose a philosophy. It's sort of like parenting. You're like, I'm going to choose a philosophy. I'm not going to solely follow one person, but this is sort of the direction we're going to go, right? Are you going to be a hard ass? Are you going to be a friend? Or what are you going to be as a parent? It's the Makes same sense. thing when it Makes comes sense. to this stuff. So- I think being able to craft our story in a way that people can identify and understand the value of it, what's in it for them, where those things are, is where I spend the most of my extra bandwidth trying to figure out. What are three resources that have really helped you in this journey so far? And resources can be books, podcasts, mentors, whatever, that have really helped you in this journey. So being in Austin, I think 
for me, I think Capital Factory actually has done a really, really nice job for me. They've got this opportunity to meet a bunch of mentors and be able to do. Now, I will tell people that I use it incredibly strategically, right? And I've told you about this, right? Yes, and like, yes. there's people come to me like, should I join? I'm like, I don't know if you should join this or not join this. Whatever group you're going to join, if you're going to develop any mentoring structure at all, if you're going to join any group, if you're going to pay any money to say, I'm going to be a part of this group, my strongest recommendation is do it one with your eyes wide open, do it with a really clear set of goals and then a strategic opportunity to extract that goal. And so, and if you're not going to do those two, don't do the third because nothing just magically happens. 100%. But you can look at, okay, here's access to this group. What do I need? What do, we, what do they have? What do I need? And how do I extract that? How do I put myself in this position and to be able to pull that? And so find some group like that. Can you mention what you leveraged? So in them particular, they've, they've got a, a list of mentors that basically just publish, hey, you can have these 30-minute working sessions and you know coaching sessions or what have you. And so every week, I, and I did this a lot. It's funny. I'm just doing it now. So probably the first four months, I would spend 20, 30, 40 minutes a day sort of running through it. I'm like, okay, I'm going to work on this topic. And so I would who's available to mentor during this, you know, these two weeks. And I would just backfill. I'm like, all I'm going to do is marketing or all I'm going to do is tech or all I'm going to do is sales or I'm going to do to sort of expand this. And I would do, my goal was 10 conversations within one topic and try to find people that had that level of expertise in that topic. And then I would start with the question, the very first one be like, hey, I'm just going to start talking about X and I'm probably going to sound like an idiot on this call, but I just don't know. And then I would get two or three good points. And I'd go into the second one. I'm like, I'm trying to figure this out, but I got these two points. And then the third, by the time I was at the 10th call, I could have an incredibly clear understanding Makes of sense. at least the questions I needed to go spend the next 90 days figuring out. And so I could be armed with insights. And that's how I use it. And I used it aggressively the first six months. And then for the next four months or so, I went and did all that work. And so I wasn't talking to them again. I wasn't on this process. And then just 60 days, no, not even, probably 30 days ago, we're getting ready to go live. We're doing this. I'm like, okay, now we're starting the pitch. Now we're starting the sales. Now we're going in this go-to-market strategy. We're doing our ICP. And so I've done the exact same thing, put my 10 together. And I'm like, okay, here's this conversation. Here's where this goes. You have to be willing to sound stupid. You have to be willing to expose, I don't know this, which I never really struggled with because if I'm calling a mentor, the assumption is you don't know. 100%. But I also mentor a whole bunch of people and it's always interesting the first round of the phone calls is they spend the first 20 minutes telling me everything they know, even though they're asking for help. And you're like, why? I feel like just in the in the tech space in general, people are afraid of asking stupid questions. And I feel like if you realize that if you ask the stupid question, there's probably people on that call or in that setting who also have that question who'll probably benefit from it. And worst case, there's ways to phrase it where it doesn't sound like a stupid question. Something someone used to say at Indeed was, hey, this is just a learning question for me. How do you do X, Y? Like, why are we doing X, Y, Z? But I've seen a lot of people and in the product management space, a couple of senior PMs have always told me, always ask the dumb questions because you don't know what someone's thinking. You don't know what someone's assuming. You don't know what someone knows you don't know where they're coming from. So you should always ask the dumb questions because you have no context of where the other person is coming from. But there's this assumption that, oh, they're going to think I'm stupid. Like I should know this, but no, I 100% agree. Like there's, there's just mental blockers. Well, and once I realized they don't live in my house, like my kids matter, my wife matters. Yeah. Like that, at the end of the day, what you think of me really is none of my business. 100%. And there's probably some maturity and some things that come with that. I learned a phrase a long time ago, can you help me understand why? And so I can go into a conversation and be like, I heard you do this. I have no idea why. Can you help me understand? Because then it's, it gives them an opportunity to repackage it in a way, rephrase it, reorganize it, because it's either you don't know it or it just didn't connect. And as a communicator, the responsibility of communication is on the communicator. And so it gives, you give them an opportunity to break through as well. And so when you do that, you'll actually get a level of appreciation from people. They're like, thank you for asking that because I didn't know it didn't land. And so it gives them an opportunity to restructure it too. 
What are, what are the other two resources? So you mentioned Capital Factory. So LinkedIn is just a ridiculous place. I mean, you've got to fare through and sort of know where things are, but- it, Get through the bullshit. You have to get through the bullshit. And you identify, you know, one, everyone's there to sell their wares, right? And so once you understand that, you're like, okay, but there are just really, really smart people that have an outlet- and it's a business marketing structure. Like it's brilliant, the ability to say, hey, I'm going to tell you all the good things that you need to hear, not to feel good, but to know. And if you're in their market, you're like, yep, yeah, I need to do that. And if I knew how to do it, I would. And so it's a phenomenal opportunity to just grow. And then I go through and on our Slack channels with the different teams, I probably drop this dark social, I probably drop 10 LinkedIn posts a week to the team on different things on whether it's on product or cool product, the competitors or on marketing. And I'll be like, Hey, here's what we're doing. Here's why, Oh, I don't agree with this. And I'll have full conversations about a LinkedIn post in our Slack channels to be able to ferret out and grow that idea because it didn't have to come from me. Makes so sense. even if they're saying exactly what I would want to say, sometimes it's easier to hear it from somebody else. And if they are, if I find something I completely disagree with, I'll put it out and it's a safe place for people to agree or disagree so that we can start a conversation. So are you following people? Are you just searching through just a feed or like, is there a particular way you're using LinkedIn? Or? So right now, right, we're not marketing, right? So I'm not using sales navigator. We're not doing any of that stuff from a growth sense. That'll all be in Q1. It really is. What are the problem sets that I've got? And I'll sit and I'll follow and I'll track and I'll develop Makes relationships. Sense. And then I can curate a wall that goes in and say, okay, I'm working on marketing. I'm going to pull up the marketing folks that I follow. Here's where Makes this sense. goes. And then you sort of go from there. Yeah. Makes sense. What was the third one? As fun as it is, the tech stack. Like you were talking about this. Like, And it just happened. There's really cool SaaS products out there. that, And I fell in love with SaaS again this week because – like people spend millions of dollars building software to solve a problem. And when you're building a company, you have a problem. And it's so nice to find good software that actually solves the problem you need. And for a couple dollars, and I don't like paying for SaaS, but like it just is, for a couple bucks, you're like, I just saved five years for 500 bucks a year. Hell yeah. It's such a fun experience. And so when the software works, it's awesome. Is there any particular software that's top of mind for you that you're just like? I just felt, so we always laugh. I hate ClickUp. I pay for it because we need it. And my team loves it. I can't stand it. My brain doesn't organize it. I started it. with it five years ago. <laughs> I have my thoughts. I have my thoughts. <laughs> it does its job. Um, but I was just introduced to something called DocUS. Okay. And it is a sales room that you can share with your clients because right now we're starting to build proposals and trying to build a sales deck and proposals and conversations and videos and training, everything's disparate. And this platform, they did a really nice job of putting it in one place and you can build a room and you can share it with your prospective clients and they can go see, they can go through your deck, they can watch videos, they can do the pricing, they can see it all, they can mark notes, they can comment. And now you have a centralized place for all the stakeholders. It's so smart because trying to manage, we've got like five deals right now with five different stakeholders and there's different emails and slacks. And I'm like, did I miss something? And just trying to herd cats. And so I was recommended to this by one of our, my CEO friends. He's like, man, this has been a game changer for onboarding and this. Nice. And I was like, come on. And I spent the weekend like falling nice. in love with it. We'll, we'll put your referral link in the show yeah. notes. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, one thing I like to just um, ask every founder I have on is what's your current startup stack? So is there a current startup stack you're using? So for example, our last guest, he's all Google, Google Drive, Google Notes. So what's your startup stack? So on the tech side, so Jira and GitHub and then and Copilot, ChatGPT with ClickUp, unfortunately, uh, with that. And then Slack is sort of where we live. We probably we have, you know, Docsend for being able to manage and be able to track that. That was always one of the things that I loved. We'd send out decks and I could actually see what pages they watched. I had no idea you could do that. And I'm like, oh, that's sort of fun. And so, and then this DocUS has been yeah. pretty cool. And then you're remarkable. Can't forget your remarkable. I love my remarkable. Yeah. So the ability to take notes and be able to do that. And I'm a big whiteboard guy. 
And so I can literally connect it and I can do my little whiteboard on my Zoom calls. So the team nice. loves that. Oh, and Miro. We have absolutely become phenomenal fans of Miro. Nice. So pretty cool. Has this changed throughout since you started training layers or has it been pretty much consistent? Pretty consistent. We just sort of add to what the next process is. I have an addiction to AppSumo. Um, I'm a lifetime guy. If I can go in and I can sort of scoop something up and it's great, you know, it's one of those things where um, I probably have an unhealthy amount of lifetime contracts, you know, for different things that sort of solve on the one-offs. I, I know one of the PMs there. If you want to give feedback, I can put you in touch. <laughs> um, sweet. I, I like to end with asking you a question from the previous guest and then you ask the next guest. So Justin's question, let's say you exist you exit today and you're an instant billionaire. What do you do next? What's your next move? The very next move is probably take more than a day. I have eight roles and I like working. I like solving problems. And so we travel. Part of it would be we traditionally home exchange. So we'll, we'll live in other countries for the summer. And so we would be able to do that again. And then after a period of time, we would probably identify a more social driven problem and figure out what's the best way to go do it. My wife and I, everyone met us last, we're like a bottle of wine or whiteboard, that's sort of what we need. And so taking the money thing completely away, it wouldn't be long before, okay, what's the next problem, right? I love watching my kids push and grow and the impact of that. They always say more is caught than taught and it's true and so uh, there was a period of time in my life where economics weren't a thing and I took a lot of time and I traveled and I played and I got, you know, fat and depressed because I realized that I like climbing mountains. And so it would be whatever that next sort of story is. What would your question be for our next guest? When something happened and you thought you couldn't keep going, what did you think of to help you think and get going? Thank you, Brett. Thank you for coming on. We will link everything you said in the show notes. Is there anywhere the listeners can go find you? Anything you want to share with the listeners? LinkedIn. That's where you'll you'll find us. Link a bunch. in the description. Yeah. yeah, that'll all be there. You know, one of the things that we're excited about. So, because the real goal of this is sort of twofold. So, one, we talked about being able to change the way users learn how to use software, but we're starting with the software layer because. Software companies understand churn, they understand retention, and so we need to do that. Where the real fun becomes is we're gonna turn on an enterprise layer, which is going to allow the adopting companies to be able to embed their own training of how they use the software. And then ultimately we'll link them. So you could imagine one piece of software that has a training middleware that owns the entire stack, right? So that software stack, you onboard a new employee and the system understands not just the single piece of software, but how the entire stack works together. The first thing you said is, right, we think of ourselves as the GPS of software. That language, right, we think about this opportunity, but if you're gonna drive from Austin to Dallas, you don't actually need to know the roads. What you need to do is know how to turn on Google Maps, turn left, turn right where it tells you to, and then you end up there. There's a lot of folks that need to do particular actions in order to get the outcomes, and they do it a couple times a year. The burden of them to be able to learn how to do that is so high that it adds stress and anxiety 100%. versus just being able to follow through. And so one, yeah, I always want to tell that story because I think that that gets to what we have an opportunity to do is to arm people with freedom and time to be able to say, I can actually in the app, follow it, know what I've got to be able to do so that I can execute it. One of our big problems that we had was our content creation. Where we're going to software companies, right? One of the conversations is this needs to be beyond, but you want these little micro videos throughout the system. Who's going to make them? Because we're always iterating. I talked to startup founders and they're like, oh yeah, this is great, but we're iterating and that button's not going to be there. And I go to mid-sized companies. They're like, oh, well, we have to farm this out to the marketing company and it's going to cost us $30,000 in three months to be able to get back these videos. But then we have this new release and so there was always this rationale as to why this content couldn't be delivered. And so we built a product that'll be out in about three weeks called Sequence, which will allow anyone from anywhere in the world to be able to do their click-throughs, just be able to talk. I don't care if English is a second language. I don't care if your mic's not good. I don't care if there's dogs barking in the background. If you don't understand learning theory and how to really help somebody, you literally can just talk. And then we'll take it, clean it up, 
kick out step action notes so you can automatically have your user notes without having to do anything, but then personalize it. Could you imagine being a 58-year-old executive learning how to do an onboarding on soft on Salesforce and it's using the words and the language and the tone that you understand and then the exact same video for a 22-year-old new person out of college that's starting sales and has to do the same video, but now all of a sudden using language and tones and pacing that they understand. The ability to personalize and curate this content isn't a nice to have. The youngest baby boomer is 58 years old. The oldest Gen Zer is 27, which means in the next seven years, the generation that built this country on software will have completely retired. And the generation that was raised on software, personalized and curated, if it doesn't show up in your feed, it's not important 100%. mindset, they're gonna start being decision makers. If we don't solve that personalized and curated experience, that gap, what are we doing with all that institutional knowledge of the people retiring? It's gone, never to be found. We get to repeat history again. Imagine capturing that knowledge and deploying it directly to where these new users are so they don't have to go search for it. They don't have to go figure it. It's directly to them in a way that they can digest it. It allows us to bring this together. And so if you're seeing this and you're interested, Sequence and Training Layers is really designed to change the way users learn how to use software and the way software companies can tell their story so they can help their users get their value faster. Patent pending. No, patent involved. <laughs> <laughs> um, when, when is it going live? When's your launch date? So uh, we, are starting launch, we are starting onboarding training layers January 11th and sequence by February 1, full commercial release. So we'll do onboard for the first 90 days, we'll onboard just from the wait list on training layers because we're walking through and sort of white gloving that through nice. that experience. And then trip sequence will be commercially available for people to be able to do. And for those of you that have training layers, you'll get sequence. It's part of it, you know, be able to embed it, nice. be able to connect it. Otherwise, anyone that's got any product, if they're doing any walkthroughs for anything, whether it's for a company or a software company, they'll be able to have it and use it. So we'll link everything in the description. Well, thank you, Brett. It's always Thanks, a pleasure Brett. chatting. This is fun. Thanks for tuning into Funds and Founders. If you're a local Austin founder, a venture capitalist, or just someone who's building and in the middle of their journey and would like to be featured on an upcoming episode, submit your guest pitch to abhinavsinha.podcast at gmail.com. If you have a founder-specific event you'd like to promote on the podcast, you can also reach out to me. If you want to continue to get support through your founder journey, hit the follow button and I'll see you in the next episode.